Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. When I covered my first NFL game in 1982, I noticed some people staring at me when I took my seat in the press box in Miami. I knew why. They didn't expect to see a black reporter covering an NFL game. I looked to my left, looked to my right, and saw no other sports writers who looked like me. Nearly 40 years later, there have been many changes in sports and society, but a lot hasn't changed. Welcome to Black in the NFL. I'm your host, Clifton Brown. My 40 years as a sports writer, including 19 years at the New York Times, I've had conversations with legendary athletes like Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and with today's young stars like Lamar Jackson. Now from Baltimore working for the Ravens, I will examine what it's like to be black in the NFL, looking at the experience from many different angles and with many different voices. 70% of NFL players are black. The Ravens have a black MVP quarterback. They hired the first black general manager, Ozzie Newsom, and they have one of the NFL's most black fan bases. Yet, race still impacts the NFL in unique and challenging ways, whether it's noticed or unnoticed, spoken or unspoken. The time has come for us to speak about it. Ravens owner Steve Bishotti spoke up following the murder of George Floyd, making it crystal clear that he understands why athletes, black and white, can no longer be silent regarding racism and social justice. To say stick to sports to my players is the worst possible thing that you can feel and say. If my players, both white and black, don't speak out about this injustice to their communities, then they're sellouts or they're hypocrites. If I don't defend my players, And I'm the worst kind of hypocrite. This inaugural episode of Black in the NFL is entitled Shut Up and Play. And my guests are Nate Boyer, Dr. Harry Edwards, and Robert Griffin III. Boyer is a white former Green Beret who has met face-to-face with Colin Kaepernick to discuss his protest during the national anthem. As someone who served this country with honor, 
Boyer was skeptical at first about Kaepernick's motives and methods. But after their emotional face-to-face discussion in 2016, Boyer suggested to Kaepernick that he should kneel, not sit, during the anthem, setting the stage for a form of protest that continues today. If you're white and don't understand why so many black NFL players won't shut up and play, I encourage you to wait one minute and listen to my interview with Boyer. Dr. Edwards is a professor emeritus at the University of California, and he has four Super Bowl rings through his work with the San Francisco 49ers as a consultant. For more than 40 years, this accomplished author and educator has challenged the NFL to become more inclusive, and he has advised athletes not to shut up and play. I knew Dr. Edwards had a close relationship with Kaepernick, but it surprised the hell out of me that Dr. Edwards has a close relationship with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. And then my final guest for today will be Robert Griffin III, a former NFL Rookie of the Year who has been one of the league's most outspoken players since the murder of George Floyd. He feels obligated to use his platform as an NFL player to denounce racism and social injustice, even at the risk of losing endorsements. Let's get started with my conversation with Boyer, who can talk from a veteran's perspective about the right of NFL players not to just shut up and play. Nate, before you had a a conversation with Colin Kaepernick, you saw him sitting on a bench and didn't fully understand what he was doing. Can you talk about what you were thinking about at that time before you talked to him when he first heard that he was sitting for the anthem? I saw this image of him sitting on the bench and all I read was a headline, maybe a soundbite of you know, him saying, I'm not going to stand for the flag of a country that oppresses black people and people of color. And I honestly, I took that initially as like, well, I've been to some pretty oppressive places in the world and spent a good amount of my life there, you know, from the Middle East to Africa to other places where there is a genocide and a totally different perspective and experience of what oppression is like. And so I, I almost felt offended that that word was used. And I also had this kind of narrow-minded outlook as if I am the one who has sort of an authority on what the definition of oppression is or what the definition of equality is. And of course, seeing that through a white person's lens, regardless of how open-minded we may think we are, it's impossible to actually fully empathize and understand. You can try, you can do your best, but unless you've lived that experience, you don't know. And I didn't know. And I've heard people say things like they know what it's like to go to war that, that have never put on a military uniform. And that's not fair either. And for me, it was, it was a moment for myself, a big learning moment, teaching moment through Colin and through so many others. And I'm still learning and I'm still trying understanding that my perspective and my emotions and feelings are purely based on my experiences. And for me to pretend that I know what it's like for someone else to know how hard it is for somebody else, just because I, I, I see them as a certain way or in a certain light. It's just, it's very unfair. Specifically, why did you suggest that you thought it'd be a good idea for him to kneel rather than sitting on the bench? Colin asked me if he, if I thought there was another way that he could, protest that wouldn't offend people in the military. And this was at the, at the end of our conversation. We both realized we had a lot more in common than we had different. We had a good amount of respect for one another. He understood when I said, look, this is, this is how a lot of people from where I stand kind of take things because we have a different relationship and experience when it comes to those, those symbols and what they do represent to us. And they, they aren't symbols of oppression. And to much of the world, they're symbols of hope, specifically the, the American flag. And he understood that. 
And he said, but that's not really an accurate portrayal in my eyes. And I was like, that's fair. That's a fair a viewpoint. He said, look, I don't want you to hurt. I have a great respect for what you did and what so many others did. There's something else like, do you think I could do that wouldn't offend these people? I, I said, no, there's not. No matter what you do, somebody's going to be offended. That's just the reality. But if you're asking my opinion, and this is just Nate speaking, I don't speak for the veteran community or anything like that. I said, I think being alongside your teammates is the most important thing and not kind of sitting back by yourself isolated. I think that is a great symbolism, I guess, for our country, for so many of us that aren't willing to listen to someone with a different perspective. Because you and I don't see eye to eye on everything, Colin, but we're here talking and we're cool. I said, so if you're committed to not standing, if you're willing to be alongside your teammates, I think kneeling is the only thing that makes logistical sense, <laughs> really. Uh, and also, it's, you know, it's a respectful gesture. I, I've never seen kneeling as anything but respectful. You know, we kneel to pray and uh, propose to our future spouse. And when a player on the field is hurt in a football game, the players take a knee out of respect. And when I go to Arlington to visit my fallen brothers, I take a knee in front of a grave out of respect. So I think that would be a good option. And he actually agreed. And that night he took a knee and I stood right next to him. And, you know, that's sort of where that all came from. You believe that people can disagree on this issue, yet still find a way to work together. Why do you think it's so hard for so many people to see it that way? I don't have a good answer as to why, but it is a very frustrating time in that regard. I mean, I feel like we're just going backwards as far as our, our growth as a, a human race in a lot of ways, you know? And I think it's so important that we do have different views. That's why, to me, America is great, because we do have those different views. That's what makes great teams on the field and in the military. Like, that's what, those are the winners. That's how you win. And like, we're just, we're losing right now because we're not willing to sort of swallow our pride and just have a little bit of humility. How much blowback do you get from white people, particularly white soldiers, about you defending Collins' right to kneel? It's definitely slowed quite a bit. But at the beginning, I got a lot. And I understand it, you know. I, I, and I don't, I don't blame them because if you've ever carried a casket, draped in an American flag, which I've done with one of your brothers inside, it's a tough thing to just ignore that emotion. It comes back, and it comes back in the form of anger. And anything that's worth doing is not easy, especially a big change. It comes with a lot of, of pain and a lot of blowback and a lot of sacrifice. And so it's been way less and less, especially over this year. So that's something else for 2020 that has minimized the amount of you know, the hate messages that I'm getting, I still get them. I still get them every day from somebody, you know, Jeez. but the amount of it and also like the validity of it, like it's, it hasn't really been from people I respect so much as just like, I mean, shoot, it could be bots half the time. I don't know. And initially it was people I knew, people I fought alongside and that really hurt. That's hard. But I felt in my heart that I had to stick with where I was at because there was a lot of people that we're supportive as well. There was a lot of people on the other side of things that were like, you're doing a good thing. I know it's hard right now. Just stay where you're at and don't, uh, don't give up on it. So that's been something that's been interesting to sort of see the evolution of, but it's definitely gotten better over the last few years. Nate, I appreciate your time. More importantly, I appreciate your candor and your courage regarding these issues and what you've said and what you're doing. So God bless you moving forward and all your endeavors. Thanks so much for coming on Black in the NFL. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate y'all having me and what you guys are doing. I'm just trying my best, and I know you are too. <laughs> Amen to that. Take care. See ya. 
Our next guest is Dr. Harry Edwards, who has decades of perspective about what athletes risk when they don't shut up and play. He organized one of the most famous protests in sports history, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists after winning Olympic medals in 1968. The United States leads the Olympics in medal awards and is just about supreme in the sprint races thanks to men like Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Yesterday, they came in first and third in the 200-meter dash and then stood on the victory platform with bowed heads wearing black socks and gloves in a racial protest. He has worked closely with San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who rocked the sports landscape with his kneeling during the national anthem in 2016. Dr. Edwards, I think few people in the world have your kind of historical perspective on the the issues of athletes and social justice. Now, Roger Goodell released a video saying Black Lives Matter after the George Floyd incident, which was a clear reversal from the league stance a few years when Cap was, was protesting. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of Black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe Black Lives Matter. I was curious your reaction to that and what that means or didn't mean for the long-term future of the NFL dealing with social issues. First of all, the first time Cap sat on the cooler, in that preseason game, I went into the locker room at the San Francisco 49ers and got his jersey and his shoes, had him autograph him, and I sent him to Lonnie Bunch, who was then curator of the National Museum for African American History and Culture. And I told him to put him in a kiosk right between Ali and Smith and Carlos because Kaepernick was going to be the face of this generation of athletes. And, and Lonnie said, well, how do you know? And my response was, because the analysis is correct. I knew exactly and precisely where that was headed. I also talk to Roger on a regular basis. Troy Benson and Roger Goodell, they, they are eminently decent people. Roger is an individual who was at the helm of the ship of the NFL, but there are 32 guys behind him wearing captain's hats, and all of them are talking at the same time. He's in a tough position, but that's what they pay him to do. So I don't have any sympathy for him, but I do try to advise him in terms of what I think are creditable steps that he can take to deal with this situation. When he came out with his statement, he did not consult me. But on the other hand, sometimes he uses me like a lawyer. He doesn't come to me before he commits the murder. He comes to me after he commits the murder and say, how do I clean this mess up? So, so this is one of those instances where that would have been a statement that I would not have advised him to make. And if he was going to make a statement, he should have used Kaepernick's name. He should have came out and said, I understand this situation. I'm the commissioner of the league. I do not hire players. I think that Kaepernick should be in the league. Mouthing Black Lives Matter doesn't mean you get it. White people will get Black Lives Matter when they've changed the system, when we've shifted from the pain of the Black community to the problems embedded in the human and institutional relationships in the white community, and those changes have been made, and they can look back and say, wow, we get it. That was some sick stuff we were involved in. But until then, just mouthing me too doesn't mean they get it. And when you mouth me too and don't even use the name of the individual who is most central 
to the situation you're addressing like Kaepernick, then you really don't get it. We're in the same situation now that we've been in since 2017 when Kaepernick was not picked up by a team. Cap is still on the street. All of the PSAs, all of the sympathetic statements, all of the money they may pledge to social justice issues won't mean very much. And point of fact, it will stand in stark contradiction to the reality, if not in abject hypocrisy, as long as Kaepernick is on the street. It's a very simple matter to put Kaepernick on a roster. They are recruiting quarterbacks out of retirement villages. They're stacking money on tables in front of guys who have retired to bring them back because they can take a snap. And there's Kaepernick on the street. And so at the end of the day, there's no rectifying this gross contradiction. Can you talk about what it was like for Black athletes in the 1960s and kind of compare that to where Black athletes and athletes in general are now? Well, I think we have to understand that any particular generation of athletes is really inextricably connected to the evolution of Blacks in sport in American society. So that first wave of Black athletes with uh, Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and Paul Robeson and Jack Johnson, who achieved most of their respect as athletes in the international arena, after that was the post-World War II years of Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby in baseball, of Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Bill Willis, and Marion Motley in football, most certainly of Errol Lloyd, Chuck Cooper, and Sweetwater Clifton in basketball, where they were struggling for access, framed up by a civil rights movement, which was trying to break down segregation, not to integrate, but to desegregate, because the thought was that any uh, change would be both ways, that there'd be whites moving into black institutions and hotels and restaurants and so forth, and blacks moving into white institutions, hotels. So it wasn't to integrate as much as to desegregate. Of course, that move turned out to be one way. And what happened was that there was a predatory inclusion where they brought the black athletes in. They didn't bring in the black coaches or managers or ownership, for example, in the Negro Leagues. And by 1956, when Jackie Robinson retired, the Negro Leagues had collapsed. The black colleges could no longer recruit blue chip black athletes because it was a predatory inclusion that was involved in what was literally a corporate plantation system of sports organization. That brought about the rebellion in the third wave of black athlete revolt, which was Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, most certainly Arthur Ashe, Kurt Flood, who said, I'm just an $80,000 a year slave when he challenged the rule that allowed owners in baseball to trade players away without any say or in point of fact any notice. So everything is kind of built upon everything else. That third wave, which challenged the dignity and respect uh, level that Black athletes had, even in the desegregated sports environment, was critical to the fourth wave, which came along with Kaepernick. Cap realized that with the Trayvon Martin murder, with the Mike Brown murder, with the other murders uh, that occurred under cover of the badge, the only reason it was him rather than Mike Brown, the only reason it was him rather than George Floyd, the only reason it was him rather than Rayshard Brooks is that he was not there. And so again, this intersection of sport, race, and society 
uh, has generated generation after generation of athlete rebellion. And now we're into a fifth wave where we're no longer talking about individual athletes like Smith and Carlos. We see entire teams of athletes leveraging their power. And what we saw in the bubble from the Milwaukee Bucks, what we saw in terms of what's happening with baseball and Major League Soccer and the WNBA was absolutely inevitable and unavoidable. Do you think that Black athletes feel the pain now that those athletes of the past have when it comes to what they're seeing happening in our streets, happening with people being murdered, and, and the things that we've seen transpire in 2020? Do you sense the same pain from athletes as you did back in the 60s when you first started your work? Well, pain is a very, very personal thing. That's one that's almost indefinable. One person's pain, uh, another person may not even see it like that. But what I do know is there is a sense of vulnerability. As I stated, these athletes realize that the only reason it was George Floyd and not them is that they were not there. At the end of the day, it's not so much the pain as the vulnerability. So what these athletes are now saying is that we must move beyond this focus on black pain, which generation after generation has caused us to recycle back to these protest movements. We need to focus on changing relationships within white society, within its human and institutional relationships that generate that pain. And this has always been a major problem because as soon as the emphasis has shifted in the past from black pain to white institutional problems, whites have begun to back up and shy away because they don't want to deal with the problem of white supremacy. They don't want to deal with the problem of white privilege. They don't want to deal with the problem of white inordinate power. We're not just talking about the pain that everybody is so empathetic with in terms of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks. We're talking about attacking the problems in the white community that generate that pain. When we begin to demand, as these athletes are, a change in the institutional relationships and the human relationships in white society that generate that pain, you're going to get a backlash. And that's when you're going to begin to find new pressure on these athletes in terms of their demands. Speaking of backlash, Colin Kaepernick certainly got that and more when he took his stance or took his knee, I should more accurately say. What's your reaction to the backlash that he took? And in any way, were you surprised or did that turn out differently than you thought it would when he made that stance? It turned out exactly and precisely the way I thought it would. I, I talked to Cap about what the likelihood would be. I mean, if you go back to the first wave of athlete activism, Jack Johnson was literally run out of the country on a law that was specifically geared to capture him, the Man Act, crossing interstate lines for illicit purposes with a woman. And he wound up spending two years in jail. Even Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens were hounded for literally years, decades, uh, by the Internal Revenue Service. Paul Robeson was declared an Orwellian non-person. Even Jackie Robinson finally said in his autobiography, I can't stand up for the anthem or the Pledge of Allegiance because I realized I never had it made. And of course, Tommy Smith and John Carlos were banished from amateur track and field for life. Muhammad Ali was kicked out of his boxing profession in the prime of his career. This kind of retaliation is traditional within the American 
system of corporate plantationism when it comes down to African-American athletes, especially those who have the commitment, the intelligence, the courage to stand up and say, we as a society are better than this. I take seriously that notion of this being the land of the free and the home of the brave with liberty and justice for all. I believe in that, and I'm willing to put everything on the line to demonstrate and stand behind that belief. And America's response has been, and you will pay, as far as we're concerned, the ultimate price in terms of your career as an athlete. What happened to Cap is traditional. And I think that he was ready for it. It was not something that he would have welcomed. It was not something that he would have desired, but it was something that he most certainly understood was part of the deal. Now that NFL players have seen what happened to Cap, but they seem more determined than ever, collectively, black players and white players, to take a stand and do something about some of the things going on in this country, do you think the outcome will be different this time? And what advice would you give to these athletes who clearly want to do more to bring this country together and to affect real change? First of all, there is some degree of security in numbers. You're looking at team efforts in this regard. I mean, baseball, Major League Soccer, the NBA, the NFL. I think you're more likely to see team efforts. And the whole issue of protest is great. But at some point, you have to move from protests into programs if you're going to achieve progress. And I think that this is where it's kind of uh, falling off at. You have teams that are protesting, but what are they going to do? That becomes the issue. How do they get all of the stakeholders involved? Now, when you begin to talk about boycotting games, which is why I call for a boycott of the 1968 Olympics, you get all of the stakeholders involved in those games involved in next steps. You get owners, you get sponsors, you get the television networks, you even get organized fan groups, you get cities, economic powers in the local area where the stadiums are located, where they make their money. You get all of them around the table and talking seriously about putting pressure on the district attorney, putting pressure on the prosecutors about some of these murders that are taking place under cover of the badge. When you begin to talk about boycotts, you're sending a message because there will be no business as usual until we get that underway. Kneeling is a form of protest. You're making a statement. I'm not against anybody making a statement. Once the Milwaukee Bucks essentially had a work stoppage followed by the rest of the league, athletes are sending a message to everybody who was a stakeholder in that walkout. A message has been sent. It comes down to, yeah, I get it, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We have to move from protest and making a statement to progress. And the way you get there is to get all the stakeholders around the table, but you send them a message letting them know that you have a role in this. Dr. Edwards, I want to thank you so much for your time, for your life's work, for your commitment and all that you have brought to the table. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Let's welcome Ravens quarterback Robert Griffin III to Black in the NFL. He's a former Heisman Trophy winner and a former NFL Rookie of the Year. 
His parents were both sergeants in the United States Army. Robert was born in Japan. His family moved often, spending time in Washington State, South Carolina, and New Orleans before settling in Texas during his high school years. Robert has been exposed to many cultures and environments, giving him an eclectic view of the world. And over the past several years, he has become one of the Ravens' most outspoken players on race and society. Athletes who refuse to shut up and play like Robert are getting more support from teams and fans to speak out on social issues. According to an August survey conducted by ESPN, 71% of fans support athletes speaking out, and 44% strongly supported it. Nearly half of the fans surveyed said that they are more likely to support teams and athletes who speak out than they were last year. Robert is determined to be on the right side of history when it comes to race and social justice. Let's hear from him. Welcome to the podcast. Obviously, fans know a lot about you as an athlete, but I wanted to start off first with kind of your background. I know you come from a military family. You've lived a lot of places growing up. How do you think that has shaped your views or did shape your views as far as race, social issues, and things like that, having such a background, living so many places? Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but my parents combined served 34 years in the military. So I was born in Japan, moved around a bunch, lived in uh, Washington State, New Orleans, Louisiana, South Carolina, and then finally settled in, in Texas, in Copper's Cove, Texas. So I was able to, to live life in many different areas with many different ethnic backgrounds. You know, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to live the suburban lifestyle, but uh, I was able to grow up in the projects, to grow up uh, in the inner cities and and see how those different dynamics play out. And uh, sometimes those weren't always predominantly black communities. You know, some of those communities are also uh, predominantly white. So I was able to learn how to adapt in different situations. My wife tells me all the time when I get around my family from New Orleans to 504, she says, man, you start talking different. And <laughs> I don't know who you are. Like, what, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know, but they know. And you just learn how to adapt in different situations. And unfortunately, in America, that's just not the case. Everybody doesn't get that opportunity to grow up in different communities and, and, and experience different cultural norms. So that was has set me up really well. And it's allowed me to be a great leader also in football because the NFL is a melting pot. You know, I know that the league is predominantly black, but you get all types of races and creeds uh, coming into the locker room. And you have to be able to communicate with those guys effectively, not just as a quarterback, but just as a person. Let them know that you understand what they're going through and understand some of the things that maybe someone who's never experienced that would. You as an athlete, Robert, have found your voice speaking out publicly about really a variety of things, almost anything seemingly that you want to speak out about. Some athletes, even though they have a lot of opinions and a lot to say, don't say it publicly. Where do you think you learn to have the confidence or presence, however you want to phrase it, to have such a powerful voice? The guys who don't have the voice yet and are afraid to express it, there's you know a big reason for that, and it's job security, right? And all the guys weren't, weren't kneeling in 2016 and 2017 because they knew, based off what team they were on or what community they were in, uh, where their team was represented, they might not have a job the next day if they took that knee. I think what is happening today 
by virtue of the coronavirus, people became more aware of some of the things that the minority communities are having to deal with uh, when it comes to inequality, police brutality, and racism. Uh, and I think that has made it more acceptable for guys to express themselves uh, in a manner like myself to to bring attention to those things. I'm a guy that has typically not spoken out as much as I have in the past year or two. Uh, I've done mo- more things in the community behind the scenes because I felt like that was more effective. Uh, sometimes people speak out because they want that attention. They want it to be about them. And I did, I never wanted to be that guy. So I felt like if I went into the community and made an impact to try to fix some of the issues that were going on in those communities, it was more impactful than just saying something on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and then not not doing anything. So this year, I got to spend a lot more time at home with the family because of coronavirus. We didn't have OTAs or minicamp. And I just tried to think maybe now is the right time to not just do it behind the scenes and in the community, but also to use the platform that I have on social media uh, and the millions of followers that I have there to to be outspoken and not be afraid of any negative backlash or or job security uh, issues. And that's the main thing that I think a lot of guys are afraid of. They're afraid of the backlash. And now what's going on, it's like, why not, right? Why not take a knee during the national anthem to show not just the black community, but all communities in America that you are in this fight with them. It's time for us to to be the country that we always say we are, right? We send troops all over the world to solve everybody else's problems, but we just want to turn a blind eye to the ones we have right in front of us. So I think that kind of really, really dug deep with me because my, my parents served and, and they, they sacrificed for this country for people to be able to protest, for people to point out the wrongs that are going on and what, what has been going on in our, in our nation for, for so long uh, has to come to an end. Yeah. I mean, speaking of your parents, you said they're both military. So I'm curious, you know, are they against players kneeling or what's their feeling on that? And you also mentioned your wife. She's not from this country. So how does she view all that's going on here and the conversations you guys may have? I'm not going to lie to you. We we could have an entire podcast about the fact that my wife is not from this country <laughs> and just some of the things that that happens here and just how mind-boggling that is, not just for her, but just for people who live abroad and they look at America as this, you know, we're a, a world leader, we're this powerhouse, and we have these issues that are that are easily fixable if we just acknowledge them, right? And if we just put in a plan of action to, to eliminate them. Uh, as far as my parents, I'm not going to lie, mom and dad initially didn't want me to, to be as vocal because I'm a black man in America. They didn't want me to receive negative backlash. And after kind of explaining to them, you know, what I said earlier in, in this podcast about, you know, the time is now, like, why not do that? I think they understood that and have supported me through it. They became understanding extremely fast. I think it was after the video that we did with the Ravens. I mean, I put that video out. I think it was six or seven minutes long, straight, just talking to the camera. I sent that to my dad and my mom. Our legislators abandon us. Our press vilifies us. We're proud to be black. And we're going to continue to be proud to be black until the day we die. And that's all we have to say. They called me immediately and said, wow, that's powerful. You need to share that everywhere. And I think that's when they were on board. What did you think 
when you saw that video, Robert? I mean, obviously a lot of players and coaches were in it, a lot of people from the organization, Steve Bashani. When people were first talking about it, no one knew exactly how it was going to turn out and what it would look like. Right. What did you think as being a member of the team, being in the video? Just curious to hear your thoughts about what you thought of it after you first saw it. I thought it was was very powerful. And I think we were one of the first teams to get it done and lead the way for the rest of the league uh, as far as coming out with those types of videos and statements. My thought was, wow, Steve Bashotti, it was on 100% his call. He didn't have to do that, right? We talk about it, the unaffected have to be just as outraged as the affected in order for a change to actually come to fruition. And I thought that was a big moment of that. So I feel like the video went a long, went a long way to actually making our own, our own organization even closer because people were having to hear stories that, you know, we normally don't tell. I don't just go to the, the castle, as we call it. I don't just go to the castle and like tell horror stories about what happened to me when I was growing up. Like that is, that's not what it is. You go there for a job. You go there to, to be the best player you can be and help the team win, the team, the team, the team. Well, I think our team in general, just players, coaches, administrative, marketing side, the media side has grown so much closer because they've had to sit down and listen to these stories. And I think that's the attention that needs to be brought to them. And now we're going out and, and, and making actions and making things happen. As powerful as that was, and as many people were involved, as you know, not everybody's on board with uh, the things that we're talking about. Right. Uh, and obviously you get reaction online that's negative. How do you handle that? Anything that you say, there's going to be detractors. There's going to be naysayers. My job, I feel like our job is to educate. It's to educate and not get frustrated. And I think that's where we're at. Some people are, are clinging to ideals that may be out of touch in today's world. And some people think that if they support Black Lives Matter, they are tearing themselves down. And that's not what it is. Your support of Black Lives Matter or the Black community or, you know, the fight against injustice or racism, that's not pulling you down as a as a white person in America or any other creed. You're really just trying to build up the Black community so that everybody can be on an equal playing field. All lives can't matter if Black lives don't. And Black lives in America have inherently shown up to not matter in certain situations with police brutality mass incarceration. I can keep going, but I'll, I'll stop. So I try to use this analogy that if, if a house is on fire and you're, you're the fire department, you go put out the fire at that house. You don't drive down the street and spray water on every house on the block <laughs> on your way to the house that's on fire, right? And the house that's on fire right now is the black community. That house is on fire. We have to put out that fire to be able to build that community up so that it can be in good standing with the rest of the house, the houses in the community. It's about human rights and doing the right thing for everybody. Nobody deserves to get shot seven times in the back in front of their children. It's not even just that. It's at what point do you say enough is enough? At what point are we going to hold police officers who do step out of line accountable? Because not all police are bad. Not every story that we all have from encounters with police officers are horror stories, but there's a few bad apples. It's just about accountability. And that's where we were with the Ravens when we talked about 
getting the, the vote for the uh, policing act uh, in the House and in the Senate. When you sign up to protect and serve, you got to protect and serve. It, you're not signing up to just kill people. You're not signing up to to shoot unarmed black people. When uh, you see some of the things that have happened, like with the Milwaukee Bucks not taking the floor for a playoff game and how that kind of brought everyone to the table. I talked to Dr. Harry Edwards on this podcast, and he said he was really thrilled, basically, to see the Bucks take action like that because it forced everyone to come to the table, the owners, the league itself, uh, the players, the sponsors. Do you feel that athletes, and I'll particularly focus on NFL athletes since you're an NFL player, watched that and said, wow, you know, like if things don't change, if some of the promises being made aren't kept, that this could be something that, you know, we could do down the line if necessary. Although the Ravens, we didn't decide to cancel practice. Numerous NFL teams canceled practice. I believe the NBA canceled games for two days. And some people would look at that and say, okay, well, what did you really do? Well, at the end of the day, you made people talk about it. You made people talk about why they missed those games, why these teams canceled practice. I mean, we had a a three-hour meeting about it after practice, something I've never experienced in my entire life at at, at any level, college, high school, pro, any of it which was phenomenal to me because we had that conversation a couple months ago. And the first thing that we said when we got in there was, here we are again. Here we are again having the same conversation, but it was a more in-depth conversation. And we were in person. We weren't via Zoom. Uh, and it was, a, it was a powerful conversation. So seeing them do that, it lets everyone know that if things don't change and these things continue to happen and we don't do anything to implement a, a reform of it, then we're just not going to play. And I think NFL players are in, in, in line with that. No one wants to miss games, right? Primarily, guys, we're, we're driven to win championships, right? We, that, it's like ingrained in us to win, win, win. But even more than that, guys want to take care of their families, right? So we want to play because I, I want to be able to, to take care of my kids. I want to be able to take care of my wife. I, I want to be able to you know, honestly pay my bills. Right. (laughs) But at the, at the same time by us playing or not playing, we control the narrative. So I think that's where players are right now. We feel like we are having some positive reform and I feel like the NBA has kind of led the charge on that. But as NFL players, all eyes are going to be on us and we're the most popular sport in America. So if things don't start to change, then we're going to have to change. And I think the players are prepared to do that, even if it's going to be a very hard decision that ends up affecting their bottom line. Robert, great talking to you, as always. <laughs> Love the way that you're moving the conversation along. It's just uh, you're showing who you are, for sure. And definitely, I think this is a time where we're going to look back, those of us who are fortunate enough to look back, and look at 2020 as a time that was important for this country. Yeah. Thank you for being on Black and NFL. <laughs> Best of luck this season to you and to obviously to the Baltimore Ravens. And uh, keep on keeping on. I appreciate you, brother. Let's, let's be on the right side of history. That's what I would tell everybody. Be on the right side of history. And uh, let's make this change happen. 
All right. Take care, man. Appreciate you, brother. God bless. This concludes episode one of Black in the NFL. If you still think athletes should shut up and play, think about this. In America, a white green beret like Nate Boyer can meet with an outspoken athlete like Colin Kaepernick and they can both grow from the experience. In America, a courageous man like Dr. Harry Edwards can encourage athletes to raise their fists on an Olympic podium and 50 years later, he can still challenge athletes to raise their consciousness. In America, Robert Griffin III can pursue the career he wants, marry who he wants, and speak out when he wants. That's the America I want. Do you? Join us for the next episode of Black in the NFL, entitled To Kneel or Not to Kneel. Our guests will include Ravens defensive players Calais Campbell and Matthew Judon, who both knelt during the National Anthem in London in 2017 when Judon was with the Ravens and Calais Campbell was playing for Jacksonville. We'll hear from other voices in that episode as well. This podcast was produced by Blue Wire. Noah Eberhard produced and edited the show. Ryan Mink, Michelle Andres, Peter Moses, and Jonathan Yales were executive producers. Until we talk again, be safe and be blessed. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.